Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is David Gessner. David is an author, a professor, and one of the leading contemporary voices on the natural world in the American West. He's written 10 books, including All the Wild That Remains, Edward Abbey, Wallace Stegner, and the American West, which is one of my all-time favorites and was a former Mountain and Prairie book club selection. Thanks to David's influences ranging from Henry David Thoreau to Theodore Roosevelt to Wendell Berry, he preaches the gospel of appreciating place and protecting our wild landscapes, public lands, and fragile western ecosystems. I've been a huge fan of David's work for many years and have read almost everything he's written. I can't overstate how much his writing has helped me to understand both the history and the modern-day challenges facing the American West, as well as the individuals who have shaped the region. Through masterful prose, he combines history, current events, deep personal insights, and a hilarious sense of humor into very, very impactful books. Without his writing, my interest in land conservation would be a fraction of what it is today. David was in Colorado conducting research for a new book focused on public lands, Bears Ears, and Theodore Roosevelt. So we met up in Boulder for our conversation. In a little over an hour, we managed to cover a wide range of topics, including public lands, Stegner, Abbey, TR, the idea of boomers and stickers, and the importance of place. David described how a bout with cancer helped to change his writing style and interests, and how moving to Boulder in his 30s altered the trajectory of his life and career. We talked about his writing process, his coastal writing shack, and how his approach to writing has evolved over the years. As usual, we touched on favorite books, films, and his most powerful outdoor experience. Meeting David and having this conversation was a dream come true for me, so many thanks to him for taking the time to chat. There are a lot of resources and other priceless information in this episode, so be sure to check out the episode notes for links to everything. Hope you enjoy. When you meet somebody for the first time, like you're walking down the street and introduce yourself to my, and they ask, well, what do you do? Sure. How do you answer that? Well, um, for a long time, I didn't say I'm a writer because it sounded pretentious, you know, and particularly when... I mean, I guess if I were honest, I would have said in my 20s and mid, until my mid-30s, I'm trying to write, but that does not really fly with like my dad's businessman friends, <laughs> nor did I obsessively play Ultimate Frisbee. That also got Snickers from them. And my third passion was political cartooning. So basically, I, I threw all my passion and energy into three things that most people consider ridiculous. <laughs> So now I, you know, I might grudgingly admit I am a writer, but uh, I have a day job as a teacher and that they understand teacher a little better. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> an easy one. Um, so you, so where do you live? I live in Wilmington, North Carolina. I've written a lot about how I have um, moved around. In fact, I wrote a piece for High Country News way back when I lived in Boulder, Colorado, that was called A Polygamous of Place. And it was all about how I'd grown up in the tradition of Thoreau and Wendell Berry, people who have committed and married a place, yet I cheated on my places, and I I loved Cape Cod, but then I moved to Boulder. I 
wrote a book about loving Cape Cod while I was in Boulder and then moved back to Cape Cod and wrote a, wrote a book about loving Boulder. I wrote a book about ospreys on Cape Cod that basically ended, I will stay on Cape Cod forever in the spirit of Wendell Berry. And that's how I got my job in Wilmington, North Carolina as a teacher. Some professors read it and liked it and hired me to teach in the creative writing program down there. So you have been there 15 years now, is that right? Just about, yeah, 15 years. And so, but the, the West is obviously extremely important to you. It's in your blood. It's the subject of so much of your work. Yes. So what what brings you, we're sitting in Boulder, Colorado right now. Why are you here right now? I'm here because four years ago while I was teaching in Boston, uh, my wife and I were talking with some friends who left their home in Boulder every summer and spent two weeks or three weeks on Cape Cod. And I asked the pertinent question, what do you do with your house while you're on Cape Cod? (laughs) So we move into their house when they're on Cape Cod. And some friends of ours from Telluride moved into our house. So it was a symbiotic thing kind of. So I came out because we come out every year to kind of renew our connection to Boulder, which is one of the key places for me. Specifically right now, I'm also working on a book about Teddy Roosevelt in Public Lands, and I'm doing what I did in my Abby Stegner biography, uh, which is thread lives together with current issues, in this case specifically Trump's 85% reduction of Bears Ears. So this is both a time of vacation and a time of research because I'm leaving here on Friday in, t- in two days to uh, – head into Utah and just talk to everybody about Bears Ears and um, talk to a lot of Native people, Native Americans about Bears Ears and just try to soak it all up. So, you know, what I tend to do early in books is just do as much as I can. I think that get action is a Teddy Roosevelt phrase. Um, And I'm not a meticulous planner out of what I do. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty spontaneous. I've got lists and lists of who I want to talk to. But I go where, where I'm excited. And uh, for instance, I uh, was out here in January uh, talking to Regina Lopez White Skunk, uh, who was one of the original members of the coalition that put together the Bears Ears proposal. And I hadn't planned on making that a main part of the story I was writing. Yeah. I was writing a story for Sierra Magazine. But it was such a great conversation, and it really made me see that how unique Bears Ears was in terms of the first time you have a confluence of the American park ideal or the national monument ideal with the Native American ideal. Mm -hmm. And what they did was so extraordinary that it makes what's happening right now, the assault on Bears Ears, even more heinous. Most people wouldn't put uh, the reduction of Bears Ears if you were doing a tournament of Trump's greatest crimes and you did seeding, you probably would put other things, you know, number one seed. Mm-hmm. I put Bears Ears right up there because the ideal that it represented was so amazing that him just coming in, you know, as a uh, white man from Washington and, and destroying it mm-hmm. was kind of another broken treaty. Sure. So for me, this is a really pressing issue. Um, and as I travel and interview people, I'm also doing the travel that will become the narrative of the book. Got it. Yeah, that's one thing I love about your books is that they always seem to be kind of structured over an adventure. Yeah. And that was one thing I was going I wanted to ask you about. Now I want to I want to hear more about that in a minute, but um 
why is it so important to you or, or how did you come to the idea of, of these action packed trips versus just kind of sitting in your office and thinking, um, well, why, why is that, that travel and that getting out and talking to people such an important aspect of what you do versus just the, the thought process? Well, it evolved from its opposite in a way. Uh, the pastoral aspect of my earlier books, you know, it's definitely working in a tradition of Thoreau, Annie Dillard, Ed Abbey, you know, I was writing uh, more still books, I guess. Mm -hmm. Still in both senses, they were kind of quieter and lyric. Um, A Wild Rank Place was my first book. Uh, It was published when I was 35. And it was really a series of essays about, uh, I called them chapters, but they were really essays about living on Cape Cod while my dad was dying. Um, In fact, I just, I'm a month past the age my dad was when he died in in that book. Yeah. Wow. So it's a, it was a real uh, landmark moment for me to realize I'd reached that age. But, uh, and then the next book was called Under the Devil's Thumb about Boulder. And it too, it had many adventures within it, like, you know, ski trips and hikes and bike rides. But it was really, again, along that same tradition. And partly I realized one can only write so many books that say, wow, what a beautiful place this is. How cool it is, you know. Um, or as, what does Abby say at the beginning of Desert Solitaire? This is the most beautiful place on earth. You know, how many times can you, you write that particular book? And then I guess I would say the break for me was I'd written a book about ospreys on Cape Cod that was about rooting down and it was about the nesting season of ospreys, which on Cape Cod started in March. And I watched the birds come back. I was watching four nests very closely. It was the first time I got an advance for a book. So I could use, I could quit my job <laughs> and sit out there and bird watch. Uh-huh. Um, so, and I watched them uh, build the nest. I watched them, uh, you know, procreate. I was a voyeur for their sex. Um, <laughs> I watched, um, uh, the young be born, and I watched the whole thing until they flew away in October uh, or late September. And it's funny because I was taking notes the whole time and I was rooting down. As soon as the birds left, I started writing. That's the fastest book I've ever written. I re- wrote it the draft in like three weeks. Did you really? Because I've been restrained, restrained to watch the season, uh-huh. and then it bursts out of me. But anyway, that book was another example of kind of a staying in place book. Sure. Now, when I moved to North Carolina, I felt displaced. And I realized I had migrated just like the ospreys migrated to South America. And while they had done it for fish, I had done it for cash my and health insurance because I just had a <laughs> child. So I wrote about the other half of the year of ospreys. And it turns out that's an action-packed half of a year. They leave, in my case, my birds, my birds. Sorry about that, birds. <laughs> you have your own selves beyond me. Um, left Massachusetts. And cruised down the East Coast. They got to Bald Head Island, which we're both familiar yes. with, and jumped off and flew directly to Florida, skipping the Gulf of Georgia. Uh-huh. Um, and then they went to Cuba and Venezuela. So I, like, suddenly was going illegally into Cuba following the birds and seeing them stream over the mountains in Cuba, right near where Castro hit, hit out. And I was going down to Venezuela and bird watching, but having people stick machine guns in the car. <laughs> and I thought, this is pretty damn cool. And from then on... I think the books turned away from the more settled pastoral um, into more adventures because um, I really enjoyed it. And I sure. realized that rather than trying to be Thoreau and 
you know, be a grumpy, misanthropic sort. I liked talking to people. I liked having drinks with people. And I liked, you know, I felt like it's a little like I was on the cutting edge of reality TV, but it was reality book because <laughs> I was like a reality show onto myself. So I'd incorporate everything that happened in the trip. And what followed was I, I did a book about going down the Charles River with this environmentalist friend. I love that book. Thank you. And I love soaring with Fidel as well. I mean, I'll, I'll live all of them. <laughs> but also I was at a, a cocktail party in Wilmington and the great um, nonfiction writer John Jeremiah Sullivan was there. And this was right when the Gulf oil spill had started. And we were talking and he said, you should be down there. You know, you, this is your kind of thing. You should be writing about it. And I was, and I started to say, no, no, no. You know, I write about trees and birds. And, and then I got home and I was like, he's right. So I talked, I did a little negotiating with my wife. And two days later, I bombed down to the Gulf and spent a month there in, in literally in the thick of it with the, you know, with the oil on the beaches. And, and so that's when it started to kind of turn to realize, uh, that, uh, these adventures, which can be, if you handle them wrong, kind of gimmicky. Mm -hmm. You don't want, sure. I mean, I, I see a lot of that. Um, but if they're organic, like the way the Osprey book was, um, you really are setting out on kind of an odyssey mm -hmm. and learning things and surprising yourself. Sure. And that's why I don't over plan or over structure them. Now, that doesn't mean I don't write a thousand outlines after I've done them or even while I'm doing them, mm -hmm. like what would make sense? Um, in fact, if you want, I mean, I can talk a little bit, um, we can do it a little later, but I can talk a little bit about how I did that with all the wild that sure. remains. Yeah. I'd love to hear that. Because in a way that was a culmination of those type books. Uh huh. And I guess what I was doing with all the wild that remains was challenging myself. Mm -hmm. We're in Boulder right now. And my, one of my real writing heroes who hopefully you can talk to sometime is Reg Sonner, a great Western writer who wrote a book called The Four Cornered Falcon and other books. Mm -hmm. And he always talked about, he was a mountaineer. Mm -hmm. And he talked about the pleasures of the difficult, mm -hmm. both in mountaineering and writing. Mm -hmm. And for me, all the while that remains was me kind of getting bored with myself um, and wanting to return to a period in my life that had really impacted me, which was first moving West at, at the age of 30. Mm -hmm. But also... I wanted to challenge myself structurally and in a writing way. So I said, what if I do this dueling biography of Ed Abbey and Wallace Stegner, also do this travelogue to the places that mattered to them where I'm interviewing people who are still alive who knew them and do kind of an environmental state of the West and <laughs> have it have a personal meaning in my story. So it was like, you know, playing chess on three levels. Oh, yeah. And rather than being, you know, at first it was a little intimidating in theory when I was back in North Carolina planning it out. Sure. But as soon as you plunge in, again, a Roosevelt action, kind yeah. of thing, get action, um, it gets exciting. So yeah. difficult things are both daunting and exciting. And sure. so, and, and I've, one thing I can say, and maybe to younger writers is, any, every time I've plunged into one of these things, unexpected stuff comes mm -hmm. in, in exciting ways. And, and that's really fun. Um, so the trip itself is stimulating and fun, but you're also kind of living a double life because you're experiencing the trip, like yeah. going down the river for, uh, going down the San Juan River with my friend Hones, who's often in my books. Um, and it was a great experience. But at the same time, I'm taking notes on that experience. Uh -huh. So there's an aspect to it that's kind of a double life while you're doing it too. 
Were you, as a kid, were you an adventurous kid, like always wanting to travel, or was this something that kind of evolved as as you got older? I mean, when you were a kid, did you dream about going on these kind of adventures, or was it something that surprised you? I was not an explorer dreamer. You know, I, I certainly was lucky enough to travel a lot when I was young, and I was all, and sports for me were always, you know, I always wanted to be outside and running around and, and yep. smashing into people, basically. <laughs> um, and... Then, um, really for me, you know, I, I did the, I traveled to Europe a couple of times in my twenties, but coming out West was the big, really opened me up and, and to a new group of friends too here in Boulder who were adventurous. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, from reading the books that I spent my twenties in, in Massachusetts, you know, was kind of struggling to be a writer and playing ultimate Frisbee. And really never having much money, but I still traveled mm-hmm. to ultimate tournaments. Um, and then at 30, uh, I had testicular cancer and I had moved back to Worcester, Massachusetts, my hometown with my girlfriend. And I really literally wrote in my journal at one point, I don't know what's worse, Worcester or cancer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I really hated it there that year. And then I, you know, when I got the, when I got diagnosed, I asked the doctor how long it had been. And when he said six months, I counted back and I wasn't surprised to see it coincided with my move to Worcester. (laughs) And then I had radiation treatment. And the one productive thing I'd done that whole year was apply to grad schools. And during radiation in April in Worcester, it's a month long series of, you know, getting zapped um, to prevent future cancer. And it went very well. And I've been clean ever since, but I one by one got rejected from the schools I'd applied to for grad school. And some of them were very close, like UMass Mm -hmm. or NYU. But one by one, and the last one was an acceptance to Boulder. And it was like, you know, I call that um, the, um, you know, the big, that was kind of the midpoint of my life that there was a before and after. And I felt like I'd been airlifted. It's like the deus ex machina of my life. Suddenly I'm leaving the, place I liked least and, and start a new life out here. Did you know you would like it as much as you did? I mean, well, did I'd, you... I'd come out and played in an ultimate tournament here, okay. and I knew it was pretty much paradise. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, you know? yeah. so suddenly I was living in El Dorado Springs, about where we're going to swim this afternoon, actually, and you know, looking out at this spectacular mountain view and, and coming back from cancer, so everything coincided. And I started to read heavily uh, Western literature at that mm-hmm. time. I'd already dipped into Abbey but I was reading Stegner and I was reading and I was learning about my new place. And I was pretty convinced I'd stay here sure. the rest of my life. You're seeing a pattern here. Yeah. <laughs> I keep thinking I'm going to stay a place for the rest of my life. But so that began a kind of broadening of my idea of adventure. And, and so many of my friends were like heading out to Utah or, or going on a hut trip. Yep. And so it was, the community helped me become more adventurous too. If you had not have had that cancer, um, how do you think your life, I mean, it's hard to know, but, but do you think your, your life would have taken this turn of these adventures? Was that well, kind of a real wake up call? I think it was. And I think, um, parallel to that, my writing wouldn't have taken the turn it did because I mentioned Red Sonner. He was teaching a class out here in the grad program I got mm-hmm. into on the unknown genre, creative nonfiction. Uh-huh. Um, and I'd always worked at fiction and novels and I'm glad I did because, that decade of training, or not decade, that eight years of training was great for dialogue, mm-hmm. 
scene, you know, all the traditional um, sure. fictional or fiction techniques. And he suddenly, he saw my work and saw how autobiographical it was. Like one of my early heroes just died, Philip Roth. Mm -hmm. And like Roth, I was trying to recreate my own sensibility on the page as a fiction writer, which is very dangerous. It was very autobiographical mm -hmm. and very revealing. Um, and he, he kind of convinced me um, to cut to the chase you're writing autobiographically anyway. Mm -hmm. Why not write autobiography or memoir or, or uh, essay? And at that moment, my dad died. Now, would I in the East have thought to write that directly as nonfiction? Mm -hmm. I don't know. But so a lot of things came together at that moment. Sure. So it wasn't just me being more adventurous. It was me kind of finding a way to voice, mm -hmm. you know, put my voice on the page. Which is another thing it took me a while to learn is how voice-driven my work was. Mm -hmm. And, I, and at, around that time, I also started to really use a micro-cassette recorder a lot. Just when you have an idea? You, you Not only that, but to like try out paragraphs and try out sections of the book. So you would write it out and then read it into the... No, I would just say it. Like, oh, I'd wow. have it in my... You know, I work between different... Like, you see, this is my... I have an eight and a half by 11 leather journal. Sure. I've got about 60 of these from the time I was 20. Really? Yeah. And so I write longhand I, and I draw on here too. I type obviously and use the computer and a lot in the, in my early days, I, I directly write into the tape recorder. Wow. So for instance, I have an essay called letter to a neighbor about this atrocious trophy home on Cape Cod. And it, it literally came from the place. Mm -hmm. I was out walking at dawn on the beach below the bluff where this house was. Mm -hmm. And I looked up at it and suddenly I am writing in the second person to the new owner of the house. You have moved into this place. Please respect it. And I pretty much wrote the whole essay into the tape recorder really now i changed it and edited it and worked on it a lot afterward and worked yeah. with an editor great editor jennifer son at orion magazine but the gist of it had come out you know sure. from my voice yeah that's uh that that story about the cancer we we share uh some we share that experience somewhat because when i was 30 i was living in washington dc and had was completely intent on being a high power real estate developer and went to the doctor and they said, you have testicular cancer 15 hours later, I'm on the operating table. Isn't and that amazing how fast they, they, they didn't mess it. around. I mean, no. it was, it was out of there. And, uh, but my, luckily for me, the doctor called a week later and said, they were lining me up to go to, you know, radiation, go to the oncologist. Right. And he said, uh, you're lucky, you're a lucky bastard. This thing is uh, benign and it's so benign. I've never seen one of these in my life. So I got all, I got most of the benefit of, getting the scared out of me yeah. without chemo or radiation. But it, you know, it completely changed my perspective on yeah. the importance of cause. Cause that was also when the financial crisis was happening. Right, right. So I was seeing all these, you know, developers that I'd worked with out in the West and how their work was, you know, ruining the West. They were, they were abandoning these developed half built developments. And I'm sitting there, you know, recovering on pain pills and, and watching, you know, Lehman brothers crash later mm -hmm. on. And it was, uh, I can't, I would not trade that experience for anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's just, uh, and I remember when I read your book under the devil's thumb, that was one of the things that really stuck out. Just uh, that kind of shared experience. Uh, yeah. Um, very interesting stuff. It's funny how some of the worst, the scariest stuff ends up being some of the best. Yeah. I mean, it, 
I do not buy into the kind of cancer cliche of I appreciate every day. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, soon enough, you're back into your habitual mindset. Mm -hmm. But I do, in my case, it did coincide with a real-life change that, um, you know, I remember hiking that fall in El Dorado uh, just feeling like, Woohoo! You know, like I didn't sustain that, but sure. it really it was a it was it was a real feeling of resurgence and renewal, and it of course uh, is classic that it happened in the West. Uh-huh. I mean, I still I just came off a three and a half week road trip with my nephew Noah, who's just graduated from University of North Carolina Asheville, twenty one years old, and it was really fun. Uh, he was very bored with the Midwest. Uh-huh. It was yeah, very sure. And about the Dakotas, when the land starts to con- convolute and, and explode, and the Badlands come up, you could see the excitement in his eyes. And um, and he's a lifelong North Carolinian. Really? And we made it out to the Pacific, and he saw the Pacific for the first time at Stinson Beach, and it was really a, a great um, pleasure to vicarious pleasure. I mean, it was a pleasure for me too, but sure. to see it. Through his eyes. So w- as we talked about before we started recording, when the when the TR book is ready for release, we're going to have another conversation yes. and talk TR. But just for a, a little bit about TR, I'm obsessed with him. And I think most people who are love public lands and love the West are, are obsessed with him in way, one way or the other. Can you kind of define – are there any specific characteristics that, are, that really draw you to him? I mean, what is it about him that makes him so interesting? Yeah. I mean, I think particularly with our current president, and I don't want to go into too much of a tangent about that, it's so thrilling to see a Renaissance man who at one point read a book a night mm-hmm. and had this incredible intellectual life, including you know writing over 30 books, mm-hmm. uh, while having this vigorous, I mean, we were just talking about adventure, this vigorous outdoor uh, life uh, full of sports and adventure, and just happened to be president as well. <laughs> you know, like so. I was just reading this morning about him uh, swimming naked in Rock Creek uh, while he's president, while the cabinet is you know with him. And you know, I don't think we'd want to see the current president <laughs> swim naked. Uh, I don't think I would have wanted to see Tr swim naked. But, uh, yeah. But and so I think that that you know, and and it really you know among. When I wrote Return of the Osprey, the epigraph was John Muir's pick up one thing in the universe and you find it hitched to everything else. Mm -hmm. Well, that's particularly true when that thing is Teddy Roosevelt Mm -hmm. because he's just so – there's so many offshoots. Like one thing that he's not really given credit for, though we kind of know it if we think a little, is how how much impact he had on the fitness mentality Mm -hmm. of – you know, here we are in Boulder, the epicenter of, you know, if you aren't a triathlete, you're kicked out of town. Um, uh, you know, the whole idea of this vigor that he, you know, the strenuous life that yeah. he's got. I mean, in a weird way, he's like a, uh, early version of Tony Robbins. You know, he's like, also there's <laughs> like this, this idea that we're, so there's a self help aspect. There is too. Yeah. And you know, that you can will it. And if you don't, if you are f- afraid, act as if you're not, you know, okay. so there's that aspect. But then there's this intellectual, um, every problem he faced as president, he's referencing 
ancient Greece and you know Romans and and the Civil War. So he's he's got this frame of reference that's so broad. And of course, he had an amazing memory. Yeah. Um, so his the only people that I really think of, and you know, Churchill obviously was wrote many books while he was um, uh, prime minister, and he also shared the memory thing with Teddy Roosevelt. Uh-huh. They could both recite pages of stuff they'd read as oh, kids. Yeah. How yeah. nice would that be to have that <laughs> superpower? Um, so there's that. And specifically now, there's his um, his uh, conservation ethic. And as we all know, he saved millions of acres and really began. He wasn't the first. Um, earlier presidents had put land aside as parks, but obviously uh-huh. he, he was the, the most important in terms of that. And not only that, he was a great... One thing I've learned in the last couple of months, he was a great nature writer. Mm-hmm. His hunting uh, trips, you know, and these beautiful bird descriptions and these great quiet moments, it could be like desert solitaire sure. you're reading. Sure. Um, so to have a president who's aware when he's out in nature of, of how profound it is and how there's a world beyond the human world mm-hmm. and to have that insight, um, how amazing is that? Yep. So that's the part of Roosevelt that I'm going to focus on in this book. I have no pretensions to writing a biography. There are already great biographies sure. out there. I particularly like Edmund Morris's The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt. That's my favorite book of all time. Yeah, it's a great book. I, it's unbelievable. You just come out of it. It's contagious. You come out of it going, well, I can do stuff too. You know, like it's, <laughs> it's you know, to me, as you, as you know from All the Wild That Remains, biography uh, – I define biography the way Samuel Johnson did, like what you can put to use from it, That's what you can I, steal from their lives. A quote that I was looking at last night said, search for a usable past. And yeah. I thought that, that was from your book, and I thought that was so – I never thought about it that way. Yeah. But I, I just love biographies. And I think that's why we love that. We both love that book so much is it's exciting to see him doing these things. Mm-hmm. And, of course, his youth is defined by two great almost mythical but somewhat even cliche transformative events – one being the recovery from asthma and pumping up his body and you know um, and kind of transforming himself, and the other is the the effete Easterner going out to the Dakotas mm-hmm. and becoming a Westerner, and who finally says, "In my heart, I'm as much a Westerner as an Easterner," sure. and says, "I never would have been president if I hadn't been out there on the ranch." Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I think that's so exciting, and we're reading it about his life, but we're also thinking, "Huh, maybe there's a little." <clears throat> possibility of that happening in mine on a yep. smaller scale. Nobody's going to do it like Teddy. <laughs> um, so that's exciting. And so what I'm doing is I've been interested from the beginning in what's going on in Bears Ears. And I uh, was lucky enough to contribute to the book by Tory House Press uh, that was distributed to Congress w- before Obama oh, okay. uh, uh, declared it right before leaving office in December, declared it a national monument. Mm -hmm. And now it's been reduced under Trump. Now, I'd already been thinking about weaving Roosevelt Mm -hmm. with the public lands situation right now when on Roosevelt's birthday last October, uh, Secretary of Interior Ryan Zinke announced that they were going to reduce the land in front of a portrait of Teddy Roosevelt. And I was like, wait, this is just too much. I've got to do a a book, you know? Uh, And so I started, I came out to Utah in January. I just started to talk to everybody I could. 
And one thing that's going to be a little tricky about this book, and you might be interested in, is I really want to be respectful of the Native American voices that created this. And I'm a white guy from the East who's sure. coming, you know, parachuting in. So I really want to let their voices carry the day. And one of the things the book's going to be is a reimagining, a reconsideration of mm-hmm. Roosevelt. Because, um, you know, I want to have historical empathy and appreciate that some of his outdated ideas were of his time. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if we're giving him credit for being ahead of his time with environmental things, we have to be aware that he was somewhat behind his time in terms of being an imperialist yes. and his attitude toward Native Americans, which did grow better over time. Mm-hmm. But so I want to, you know, in all those books, like for instance, they always bring up, oh, he slaughtered thousands of birds as he was learning to be a naturalist. And they bring up Audubon and they bring it up and then they forgive him instantly. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to be a little harder on that's Mr. Great. Roosevelt I think this time great. around uh, because I think he's, and I also, but also, and this is really important for right now, because someone has flaws, even great flaws, uh, we're, we live in a time where uh, apparently the president's uh, uh, has a force field against this, but everybody else, if you have, you know, you've done something wrong, uh-huh. you know, you're ostracized. Sure. Well, Roosevelt was not, you know, was far, far from perfect. But I want to say, look, this flawed person is still an inspiration and mm-hmm. still despite these. So part of the book is going to be a wrestling match. And as, uh, as chair of a creative writing department, um, who's trying to bring in new voices and trying to move it in a, in a more diverse direction. Uh, I want to ask myself, this is one of the questions for this book, whether we can hang on to the best of, you know, the humanist tradition, which to me is talking to ghosts and finding a usable past and, and looking at those minds throughout the years while recognizing that those minds, it's somewhat, you know, monolithically white mm-hmm. male that we're, we're, that we being a Western tradition are sure. looking at. So how do we extend that and explode it? So it's a big question for the book and it's a right moment for me to do it because in my own life, that's going on a lot. Yeah. Well, that I can't wait to read that because, you know, obviously I, I love TR, but I, I've always wanted to find a book that was somewhat critical of him in a fair manner because I never want to put him on too much of a pedestal because, you know, everybody's human and everybody messes up and yeah. makes mistakes. And, I, I can't wait to see what you come up with because well, uh, there's a need for that. I mean, even even yeah. Edmund Morris's books are there's not that much negative about him other than no. he talks a lot no. and he says me 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 me. Um, I believe I hope I don't get her name wrong. I have not. I've been told by a couple experts that the best single volume biography is by. Uh, uh, please correct me if yeah. I'm wrong. I think it's Kathleen Dutton, and it's the strenuous life. I've seen that one. I haven't and, read it though. And she talks more about him having created this myth mm-hmm. and then propagating the myth and others kind of buying into it um, and how, you know, there's a, there's a PR aspect to TR that you can never forget. Sure. You know, he's a great self-promoter. <laughs> um, so, yeah, to, to kind of like peel that back a little bit. Sure. Um, well, I'm, I can't wait. So yeah. get ready when, yeah. when, you, when we talk next time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that points out uh, an aspect you know, more and more I'm asked to do journalistic pieces. Uh-huh. And I'm actually growing frustrated with 4,000-word, 5,000-word magazine pieces um, because 
they squash the essayist out of, or they bully the essayist out of there. And with these books that you could, you know, if you looked at them quickly, say, oh, that's journalism, uh, there's always a personal thread. And All the Wild That Remains, for example, the personal question I was asking throughout, where I had two kind of heroes, Ed Abbey and Wallace Stegner. And Abbey was a hero of those years in El Dorado Springs and just kind of being wild and free. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I am not uh, quite the misanthrope that Abby was or the misogynist that Abby was, <laughs> but, but I did like the, you know, kind of the, 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 the aspect of just going out into the desert and mm-hmm. being whoever the hell he, he was. Sure. And then Stegner um, being a much more restrained and uh, you know, the, the head of the Stanford creative writing, mm-hmm. uh, the founder of the Stanford creative writing program and being a good, good husband and a, mm-hmm. and a good dad um, well, good dad is, we'll, we could go into that later, but, <laughs> but, um, you know, and my question I was asking, I, I started thinking about it when I turned 50 is, can I be a good man and still have a wild streak and be a wild man? And mm-hmm. is there such a thing as combining those two things? Mm-hmm. So there's always like a personal pushing through it. And for me, the thing I just described about opening up TR and reimagining him, uh, is really also reimagining myself, you mm-hmm. know, and thinking about my own prejudices and my own limits. And so um, I, I don't know where it's going. I mean, that's part of the fun of writing a book sure. like that. And, sure. I, and I'll see. I probably could tell you more. And Well, next time we talk. Yeah, I can't wait. That's yeah. going to be great. Um, one, th- one kind of broad subject that I wanted to ask you about that I, I think is just so interesting, and I'd never – really heard of it until I read your book, but the idea of boomers and stickers. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what that means, where that came from and just your thoughts on that? Cause I, I love that term. Yeah. I think the, you know, it, it goes back to, to, uh, Powell after coming out of the, uh, his historic trip in the late 1800s, uh, down the Colorado river through the Grand Canyon. I mean, he didn't use those specific terms, but he started to see the West in a way that Stegner would later, by writing a biography about Powell, mm-hmm. start to, um, you know, Stegner grew up I, uh, traveling all around the West with a boomer father. Mm-hmm. And boomer, um, to define the term from, you know, Stegner's point of view, was someone who goes to a place, um, sees the potential for riches, whether in gold, uh, tourism, uranium, you know, and, and sucks that out of the place and then moves on to the next place. Mm-hmm. Um, so Wallace Stegner grew up with a dad who was the very definition of that sure. and always looking for the big score. And that's why Stegner's, uh, uh, you know, famous early book is called The Big Rock Candy Mountain. He was looking for the Big Rock Candy Mountain. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, uh, Stegner's mother always dreamed of rooting down. Uh, early in the book, I visit with Wendell Berry in Kentucky, and he said to me, you must remember that Wally, you know, they were friends, his his mother, wherever they went, planted perennial flowers, you know, had the hope that this is where they would root. So Stegner grew up seeing these two poles in his parents. Mm-hmm. And he then, you know, as a big minds tend to do, he took them and saw them way beyond his mm-hmm. his family. And he saw them throughout the West in towns where, for instance, I write about Vernal, Utah, yep. uh, which had been a smaller community before the uh, oil and natural gas boom occurred. And 
all of a sudden it's a boom town mm-hmm. and all this money got spent. And then when that goes away, you have a kid with a car and a house they can't play for, pay yeah. for. And so that's what I mean, you know, that's what Stegner meant by, by the boom. Now he dreamed of Western towns, even smaller Western towns that had a school, maybe if they're a little larger, a college, mm-hmm. a community that had stores that were sustainable. Um, that was his kind of vision of, of the West. Um, and so he, and he, a lot of his ideas, to be fair, not came not just from Powell, but from Bernard DeVoto, mm-hmm. who was his mentor. Um, uh, DeVoto was writing in the 40s and 50s uh, in Harper's and the Atlantic and elsewhere about the West as a plundered province, mm-hmm. as a place where Easterners went and extracted resources and then used them and left the towns, uh, you know, the, a husk of the town behind. Sure. And I've thought about that a lot because when I went down and wrote about the Gulf uh, south of New Orleans, um, it seemed very similar to the West in that way. It was mm-hmm. a resource colony in a way. And that vocabulary uh, for me is something that I've gotten, and a lot of other writers and thinkers about the West have gotten uh, from Devoto and Stegner. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, it just seems like, you know, there are always going to be greedy people, and there are plenty of greedy people in New York City, you know, but it seems like something about the West and this is coming from an Easterner's perspective, it's just a lot more raw and it's just in your face. And it's every, you know, everybody from the real estate in my world, you know, the real estate developers, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the oil and gas companies, whoever, um, and not all real estate are bad, real estate developers are bad, but, but there's just this rawness to want to come in and, and, and just extract everything and and leave. And I, I guess it's because so much of this area out here is, is not densely developed like in the East right. Coast. And it's a lot more obvious what's going on, and right. it's scarring the land, obviously. And the land is much more scarable. Also. Oh, that's a good point. Very good point. It's not green. You know, you scar Vermont and wait a season. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to yeah, grow exactly. over. And, exactly. You know, uh, and this is this is land that you know you. When I flew over the land near Vernal, I think I wrote that it was like seeing you know a cut, a, a scar on a beautiful woman's face. Uh, it, you could see, you know, see it down there on the land. Sure. Yeah. It's not going to heal up. Um, so that leads me into this idea of, of place. And I've, I've noticed that idea through several of your books. And I, I remember in All the While That Remains, you were talking with Wendell Berry about it. And then in um, My Green Manifesto, which I loved, there was a quote in there. You talk about just the, the importance of getting to know a single place versus mm-hmm. the West. You know, get to know. Right. Like, you know, when I lived here in Boulder, I felt like I really, really knew Green Mountain. Like I knew every route right, I could right, step on. Right. And there's this richness to to really understanding just a small place. And so and, and there was a quote in your migraine manifesto that it was something like find something that they're effing with will and, and then fight like hell for it. Yes. And so can you talk about just kind of how you came to understand this importance of, of sense of place on kind of a micro scale? Because. I never thought about it like that yeah. until I read your book. I guess I was, you know, I was pretty spoiled as a kid and got to spend time on a particular in a particular house, our family house that I just uh, packed up and sold a year ago on Cape Cod. And that implies a certain degree of wealth and um, you know, um, and luck, you know, mm-hmm. that I did, but it it really got into me, you know, the tides and the, you know, I worked on a tuna boat one summer and just mm-hmm. 
And, and really, I mean, I think there's a reason we use the word love. Uh, in, in, and let me just expand on that a little bit. That kind of love was one that was created season after season. Mm-hmm. But then, for instance, coming out here, it was love at first sight. <laughs> it's a different kind of love. But when we, you know, there's an excitement to early love. You know, you're, you're, you're in that almost giddy state. Yep. So I remember feeling that way out here in El Dorado Springs mm-hmm. and walking that trail behind my house all the time. But then if it's a mature love, it deepens over time. Mm-hmm. And of course, you care for the loved one. You know, you've fallen sure. for it at first by that combination of infatuation and giddiness, but it deepens. Mm-hmm. And so obviously, as you would with your significant other, you want to you want to defend them. You want to make sure their life is good. And you know, it's been my experience that this is not does not have to be Wendell Berry's you know spot in, in Port Royal in Kentucky sure. or Thoreau's Walden. Um, I do feel like there are there are a half dozen places that I come back to, and like you with Green Mountain, you know, I know them really well. And there's a resonating aspect to. Um, I mean, I guess about the only really urban place I feel that way is the Charles River in mm-hmm. Boston and Cambridge. And I was just back there. And over the years and now the decades, you know, that affection kind of deepens. And I do feel that here. Uh, it has taken a while, but I feel it in Wilmington, North Carolina, mm-hmm. on the on, on the Hewlett's Creek, which is also known as Dawson's Creek, which oh, is yeah. where I live. <laughs> so, I, you know, I have a little writing shack there. You read my mind. That's yeah. what I was going to ask you about next. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you know, and I, I've written repeatedly that the tools you use, whoever you are, whatever tools they are, you might be a climber, you might be a, a flower person, you know, mm-hmm. or, uh, but the tools you use in a place that you love are transferable to other places you love. So, And for me, a lot of times it's birds, mm-hmm. it's hiking, um, and that's what one of the things that's allowed me to become – uh, uh, to to s- fall slowly, not love at first sight for mm-hmm. North Carolina and where I live there. And yeah, you were going to ask about the writing shack. So it was a present I gave myself on my on my fiftieth birthday. We had a big party the night before, and I bought the lumber and the two by fours. And um, and my wife got up late, and she came down and had already framed this thing out like <laughs> on. Uh, it's in a little hidden corner of our yard overlooking the marsh. And it's really become integral to my, um, to my writing life too. I go, you know, most of my writing, I really do at my desk in the early morning in my study, you know, okay. and, and I have a study at school. I'm, I'm lucky person to have three studies at this point. <laughs> um, and, you know, and I hammer stuff out, but then in the evenings, usually with at least one beer in hand, I go down there. And the morning work is very directed and ambitious and goal-oriented. That is a freer time for me, and not just because the day's over and I'm having sure. a beer. But and I I have all these books that are at this point very warped from the the weather getting into the shack. Okay. We just had a Carolina wren nest again in the above the window where I I built a window that um, they tried to say oh you, it'll cost seven hundred dollars for this window. So I just built I just bought a $40 screen door and turned it on its side. Nice. <laughs> yeah. But there was a Carolina Wren that had a little family there when uh, not long before I left on this trip. And I let myself go. You know, um, Samuel Johnson talked about reading by inclination. 
He never read a book straight through or rarely did. And I jump from book to book. I'm glad I to hear that. I, that's I, I I, yeah. <laughs> so down there, I don't have rules. You know, uh-huh. I'm, I don't have rules in the morning, but I'm, I'm very, you know, I usually have a deadline or a sure. project or a book. And it's really helped feed the morning work, too. Interesting. And it's, it's much freer, you know, for me, the, the shack work. As I so can you talk, we talked about this briefly before we started recording, but can you talk a little bit about your kind of daily routine with writing? Because yeah. you've written yeah. 10 books. Yeah. I mean, un, untold number of essays. You teach writing. I mean, you're, you produce. So how, how do you do that? Well, uh, one one thing to start with is what we when you mentioned usable past, because a lot of my role models and heroes, I met two of them just died in the last month. Um, Donald Hall, mm-hmm. whose brilliant book Life Work should be must reading for young writers. He talks about his schedule. He used to get up. He always said he got up at four in the morning uh, to start writing, and he he. He'd try to stay in bed longer because he knew he could ruin the day if he got up at three. Mm-hmm. But he was overcome with like a Christmas morning sort of feeling, excited to get to the work. Really? And and when I read that kind of in my mid-30s, late 30s, uh, another writer, Burns Ellison, is the one who gave me that book as a present. And it was one of the real um, formative, or I guess not at that point formative, but one of the real important books to me because – it freed my inner workaholic. Uh-huh. Like he wrote every day, you know, um, and other writers. Uh, I was a reader of Philip Roth when I was young, yep. another workaholic. Uh, Stegner himself was a pretty uh, daily writer. And so I went, I'd always written a lot um, and daily. And I wrote daily in my 20s when it wasn't coming at all. Sure. I wrote bad daily stuff. And yeah. I always tell my students, do the, just sit there uh-huh. and, you know, um, and, and try to get something down because you might not gain words and beautiful sentences, but you gain a habit. Yep. You ingrain a habit. So I already had that going. And then later on, I just realized how much fun I had doing it every day. So it is fun for you. It's not, it's fun for me. That's great. It used to be drudgery when I first started because I didn't really, now I have so many projects pressing. That that Christmas morning feeling happens a lot. But is it is it hard fun? I mean, I, you've talked about cycling up Flagstaff, and that's fun. But it's also an ass whipper. Very is similar, it the same kind of thing. Yeah, and and we you know, and I mentioned the pleasures of the difficult. Um, there's it's stimulating. Mm-hmm. It's not boring for me to do it. And I mentioned that when my wife and I um, honeymoon to Taos, we eloped um, and left Boulder. She made me get a prescription of Valium so that when I woke up in the morning ready to write, I could pop one in and stay in bed for a while. So, yeah, yeah. you know, so trying, so there's a, there's a workaholic aspect to it, but it's also a, a pleasurable thing. And I find that, um, I always say to younger writers, when you do something daily, because mm-hmm. a lot of these people come and they give up their lives to come to these grad, this grad program. Sure. And they still write every now and then, or they write for the deadline of their workshop. But when you do something daily, mm-hmm. uh, you suddenly have a kind of superpower. That's the dog scratching yeah. at the door. Um, <laughs> that you don't, you know, like, so I can get up, you know, and maybe didn't have a good sleep and I've got other worries and uh-huh. it's the taxes are due or yeah. something, but I'm able to shift into that mode. Sure. And it's something that um, that I've really come to rely on, the dailiness. Yeah, that daily routine is huge. For, for, I mean, I, I do it with, with running, and it's not even the actual running that is good. It's just having that in my day every day. It makes 
the yeah. whole rest of the day better. And I think athletes have an advantage, um, and it's very comparable um, uh, as far as knowing how that habit you know, is how important it is, how, mm-hmm. what a cornerstone it is. Uh, yeah. Are you an introvert or extrovert? Um, almost everybody I, who knows me would say I'm an extrovert. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of the books too, is that I'm always talking to everybody. I maintained, in fact, I fought with my family at Thanksgiving <laughs> that I'm a secret introvert. That's uh, a good fight to have considering everything else. I mean, your average uh, uh, <laughs> family this last Thanksgiving was oh, not yeah, fighting yeah, about yeah. that. Well, we only had one Trumpian in the mix. So. <laughs> And he was uh, new to be quiet. Um, but, you know, I think like – and my wife argues, no, you're not an introvert. You just be, like being alone too. Um, and, you know, that's another fun way that Roosevelt's a good model. He, uh, you know, the most social person in the world but could be alone for a month tracking, yeah. you know, tracking a buffalo or bear. Well, he didn't and, really have many friends, yeah. you know, and I've seen yeah. quotes from him saying that yeah. – I maybe have five friends, yeah. but everybody thought that they were his best friend. Exactly. That yeah. kind of gives me hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, my wife, who's a novelist, uh, Nina de Gramont, is, you know, in my last book, which was about ultimate Frisbee, a little change from environmental writing, I said what some good friend of ours had said, that we contain each other's secret selves. She seems very quiet and calm, but she's got kind of a secret uh, party social side to her and i seem the opposite and i've got a you know i spend a lot of time alone writing yeah uh reading thinking um but when i'm with people i tend to be pretty extroverted yeah i think i'm similar and loud yeah and i, and I interrupt people like i just did you <laughs> well, we can both interrupt each other um so you you know you moved out west when you're 30 you've been doing this how, how old are you now I'm 57. 57. I hate so, to admit. Yeah. I mean, a, a big chunk of your life has been out here. What, what has been some beliefs you had, maybe you had about the West during your first five or six, seven years of your kind of infatuation with it and beliefs you have now that have changed big time? Well, I was clueless, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really for me, reading Stegner and reading other Western writers not only helped me start to get, you know, I, I don't think – I mean, maybe now people realize, maybe when they're watching Westworld this week, <laughs> they realize how dry it is and mm-hmm. how, what it, you know, what percentage is desert and how, therefore, how fragile. I mean, growing up when you heard the word desert in the East, you thought Sahara and sand. Yeah, and camels. You didn't know, yeah, exactly. You did not necessarily think of orange twisting rock that mm-hmm. was arching and humping and, you know, and magnificent. Um, and I still contend that. If you've only seen Utah from like Star Trek movies or, you know, yeah. or Westworld or, uh, or even in picture books, you just won't believe it when, when you, when you get here and see it. So, um, you know, it was gradually learning, uh, through reading and traveling about the West, but also then taking these really brilliant Western writers, um, Patricia Limerick, uh, Stegner. What particularly uh, about Limerick? Uh, the, the main early history book, I can't, I, I actually took uh, a class with her here. Oh, did you really? Yeah. I mean, well, actually I took a class where she was a guest speaker. A I've got times. legacy of conquest. That, that's my, what it was. Okay. I haven't read it yet. It's on my bedside yeah, table. Yeah. Okay. But rethinking kind of the West and I'm looking forward to doing more of that rethinking over the next couple of months yeah. and just asking people, what should I be reading? You know, what should sure. I know? But so there was learning about the West. 
but there was also taking these Western thinkers Mm -hmm. and bringing it back East. Mm -hmm. So suddenly after reading Stegner writing about the interior West, I went back to Cape Cod and I looked at it in a new way. I looked at it in terms of the groundwater and the sandy soil and just how fragile it was in a similar way to the desert is fragile. And a really, you know, one of the knocks on writers like me is, oh, they're a regional writer. And, you know, the New York Times, you know, the joke Stegman used to always make, they don't realize that they're just this tiny little region yeah. and they're calling the West a, a, a little region. <laughs> yeah. um, but, um, you know, as it's turned out, I've written about three regions and three places and, and more than that, but, you know, centrally three, uh, the Cape and New England. Yeah. Uh, we'll wait a, for yeah. a bark for a second. <laughs> the Cape and New England. Um, now more and more the South, uh-huh. uh, and I say four because writing about New Orleans was an important sure. uh, change in, in my writing and about the West. And um, and so it sounds hokey, but more and more I'm defining myself as an American writer, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, as I patch these places together and see similarities and differences. And of course you see places better in comparison to other places. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as important as it is to learn one place, um, you could, you know, it's not a coincidence that a lot of fiction writers have been in a place, left it, and then written about that yeah. place, and nonfiction writers too. So I think the West was the first place when, and Stegner primarily helping me see that you could make these generalizations mm-hmm. with exceptions um, and that you could have this larger picture of a place. So then I brought that back to Cape and North Carolina. And you know, Stegner said, largeness is a lifelong matter. Did he say largeness is a lifelong affair or matter? One of those. <laughs> and uh, and he meant looking at things in a big way, uh-huh. but he also meant personally trying to get bigger and more yeah. magnanimous as you get older, which is a very hard thing to do, to not get smaller. Sure. And obviously, without doing a political ad here, we're living in a very small time where smallness reigns. Mm-hmm. And so... It's almost a political statement to try to be larger. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, and, and another motivator of the current book is, um, there's so, one of the things that we're seeing in Trump world is every day a new issue or every week a new mm-hmm. issue. And then the, the other one's forgotten. And we all want to, or not all, but many people, 60%, sure. want to kind of rebut those and come back against those. So in a way, my writing about public lands in the West is my more slow, considered rebuttal to him in an area where I know a little bit, mm-hmm. rather than trying to fight every little battle. Sure. So, um, so among other things, this is uh, this is my uh, rebuttal to Mr. Trump. This book, I can't wait for it. <laughs> yeah, I think that what you said about being able to compare places, and I mean, I think that's one of the reasons your all the while that remains was so powerful, was because you comparing and contrasting these two guys, and like Doris Kearns Goodwin book about uh, about TR and um, uh, Team of Rivals. Yeah, uh, no, no, it was the uh, other one. What was it called? The bully pulpit. Oh yeah, and, you know how he compares and contrasts the him against other people. I think it makes it a lot richer, and you know, for me personally, I appreciate the East more now that i've been out west yeah, yeah you know i mentioned i was back in north carolina a few weeks ago at the beach and i used to go to the beach all all the time and it was yeah. no big deal and now when i go i just really appreciate it and look at it from a different aspect yeah. so yeah. i think it's 
Very interesting and stuff. Bo- and both Abby and Stegner were secret Easterners anyway. Sure. You yeah. Know, uh, Abby, having grown up there, you know, in the mountains as a as a kind of a semi-hillbilly Appalachian, uh, who and he kind of, I mean, kind of celebrated that in mm-hmm. the West. And and just to quick aside, to go back to what you said about why developers, why it seems so much rawer and more. Um, like there's more open avarice in the mm-hmm. West is the, the celebration of freedom and wildness can go in both directions. Mm-hmm. In Abbey, we see it celebrating kind of unbridled, you know, here I am in nature, yeah. but that same quality uh, can be celebrated in, in saying, you know, screw your rules <laughs> I'm going to go get this thing and this belongs to me and, uh-huh. and a lack of kind of public concern or, or community concern mm-hmm. celebrating the individual. So that's, you know, the way Abby was kind of a secret Easterner and Stegner would go back every summer to live in Vermont. Mm-hmm. And often, you know, his ashes are, are, are spread there and often would kind of romanticize the civilized aspect of Vermont and the landscape and its resilience in contrast to the West, even though he's, you know, the most famous Western writer. So if you had to pick, now this is a hard question, but if you had to pick one Stegner book and one Abbey book that everybody should read, just one. For me, the Abbey is a no-brainer because Desert Solitaire has changed so many lives. Mm -hmm. It really is amazing that it has because it has no plot line. Yeah, it really does. (laughs) It should, by all rights, be boring, and parts of it are boring. But he does what all – and I'm not going to call him a nature writer because I've fought that label my whole career. (laughs) But write lyric, personal writers in the natural world. He does what all of us are trying to do which is recreate the moment he is experiencing mm-hmm. and the transcendence or the brief, you know, escape from the hamster wheel of the head. He, he recreates that feeling on the page so that you then vicariously experience that while you're reading the book. Mm-hmm. And how does he do that? Uh, you know, I think he recreates his self very well on the page, sure. but it's beyond the self. It's the, na- you know, like if you just had a book of those, the raven is swooping in, the light is shining down, you're going to be asleep in no time. <laughs> so you need to bring the reader through, but to still have those moments. Because sure. for all, for most of us, other than you know, Zen masters, we're only experiencing those in moments and glimpses anyway. Mm-hmm. So in literature to experience them, mm-hmm. I feel like I've given them a little short shrift in my more recent books, whereas I used to focus on those moments more. Yeah. But so for me, Desert Solitaire for him, and I guess it it kind of goes between um, Angle of Repose, the great big Stegner novel, mm-hmm. uh, where he gets all his main themes in. It's like Beethoven playing the chords or something, <laughs> um, or the the um, the biography of Powell, and that's a tough one because he's so uh, Stegner is so varied over his career. Well, I think yeah, I think we could give him two because he's yeah, able to write yeah. fiction and nonfiction. Yeah, we'll give him yeah. a. <laughs> uh, and there you see in all his work, you see these themes of the aridity of the West, mm-hmm. of the population, of the challenge of the landscape, of community versus freedom and individual, and, yeah. and they all come through really strongly. 
Those are great. Um, I have not read Angle of Repose, which is unacceptable. You'll, you'll love it. You'll I know. Love it. My wife yeah. just read it, and yeah. it said it's her favorite book ever. Yeah. It's, um, and, you know, a, lot, a, a kind of gateway drug to bigger Stegner, a lot of people read Crossing to Safety now. Okay. Which is a quieter Eastern book by him about friends dying, his friend, his um, good friend dying in Vermont. And it's a shorter book, and it's uh, – it's still got some of those themes in there, but people read it and go, wow, this is something. And then they go on to read Angle of Repose and others. That's where I wish I had TR's book a day talent. You know? Yes. Whenever too. I don't read enough, I think about that. I'm like, all right, if that guy can read a book a day, I can read four or five a month. Yeah. <laughs> and me too. And, and, and really what I envy most, I've thought about this, and I feel is my greatest weakness as a thinker, maybe not as a writer, but as a thinker, is I do not have that sticky memory either. Yeah. I mean, I can conjure up quotes, maybe out the same way being interested in, like I, I can tell you the starting five of the 1976 Celtics because <laughs> interest drives that, sure. right? So, but he really had a memory. And I feel like in some ways my writing has been a compensation for not having a good memory. Mm -hmm. That's why I have 60 journals. I'm getting it down because sure. I don't have that adhesive brain that he had. I always just wonder, like, what am I missing with TR? Because there's yeah. got to be some crazy bad side, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I don't. I don't think there is. There is, and I'm just so glad he's dead and gone. And it seems right. like all the info's out there, yeah. so it won't, the myth won't be ruined. But well, he drank a lot of coffee. Yeah, he all did. day long. He did. He had small hands, like Mr. Trump. <laughs> uh, he, you know, his his he had a very paternalistic, uh, patriarchal, imperialistic attitude that was slightly counterbalanced by his belief in the fair deal for everyone. Like if you, uh -huh. he, he had what are now very antiquated notions of willpower. Mm -hmm. He really, you know, and, you know, and he began with the silver spoon. So there, there are things to criticize him for, but there are things to criticize everybody for. And Have he, you read he did his, a hell of a lot. His letters to his children. Yeah. I've read some. Of those, oh, I yeah. love those, but he, you know, there's another example. He did those with half an eye on posterity too. Oh yeah. He knew they were going to be. That's collected. what Edmund Morris said. You know, when he was a 10 year old boy writing letters to his mom, he'd sign Theodore Roosevelt. Cause right. at that point he knew somebody right. was gonna be right. reading those letters. Right. Um, well, we've been going an hour, which is crazy and I could keep going, but you've got to uh, go to El Dorado. Um, mm. I've got a few real I like quick. That. You've got to go to El Dorado. <laughs> Paradise. I've got a few uh, quick questions that I okay. try to ask everybody, and we'll okay. run through those. If you had to pick, and this is really hard, but one favorite book about the West, what would that be? I've read a couple recent ones, but I'll have to, just because it was so formative for me, I'll have to go back to Stegner and those two I mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, the biography of, of Powell... Or angle of repose, probably would would be the ones that I go with. Yeah, you know another great book, totally different, is Cadillac Desert. Yeah, that's a good one. I yeah, love that one. By Mark Reisner, and uh, but if I'm forced, I'm going to have to go with Stegner. You can't go Having wrong. Having spent you know four years reading everything Stegner and yeah. Abbey wrote, I'm, <laughs> it's hard for me to get them out yeah. of my brain. <laughs> um, do you have any favorite documentaries or films? About the West in particular? Just or any, any that have been influential um, to you in your life. I am thinking about pitching a magazine piece about the career of Peter Ware, mm -hmm. who I feel is really um, as appreciated as he is, is still underappreciated. Mm -hmm. 
Um, he has some career arc things that um, I'm not I'm not putting myself anywhere near in his league, but are similar because his early work, um, including the Last Wave, Picnic at Hanging Rock, Gallipoli, mm-hmm. um, are uh, very kind of experimental and weird, and they always have a component of nature in them. Mm. And it's all, it's often semi-mystical nature. And then he becomes more, you know, the popular, you know, he uh, Dead Poet Society. Mm-hmm. I think he did Truman Show also. Oh, wow. And uh, Master and Commander, mm-hmm. which is a brilliant movie. You sure. Know, I, I would, uh, which combines kind of, has a naturalist character, a Darwin-type character, and then, you know, the the Russell Crowe yeah. swashbuckling captain. Um, so I think he held true to that vision of nature from the beginning, but put them in more accessible, bigger, uh, you know, Hollywood-like packages sure, throughout. Sure. So I'd li- I, I, his work, rather than a single uh, piece, I, I, I would uh, is something that I want to revisit and nice. watch all the way through. Um, what is your favorite location in the West? If you have to pick one spot that means a lot to you, it could be a town, it could be a certain mountain, certain creek. It really depends on um, uh, how we've been defining it in our conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, I could give you the most spectacular place and the most, um, you know, we're heading to Telluride on Friday. <laughs> and and uh, But I'll stick with the familiar so there's one little swimming hole down on Boulder Creek where I've gone like three times since I've nice. been here. And just, you know, because like the writing shack and it's part of my dailiness, mm-hmm. you know, it's not nearly as spectacular as, you know, some, some peak. Um, but, but that, or like little spots when I bike up Flagstaff and pull over. Mm-hmm. So I would like just based on the theme we've been hitting on, to have it be something that's included in kind of my daily rounds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is the most powerful experience you've ever had in the outdoors? And so powerful could be scary. It could be funny, just a, a, a particular moment in some, sometime when you've been out outdoors that sticks in your brain is like, wow, that was, that was the real deal with or without drugs. <laughs> Either. <laughs> I'll do one with and one without. The one with, I was with my friend Hones and Nina, and we were in what is now part of Bears Ears, I won't reveal where, and there was a lunar eclipse, and we had climbed, like a pretty scary climb, even before the light went away, uh-huh. up onto this rock point, and suddenly it was like pitch black, and we were kind of on the edge, and uh, Hones said, that's the last sight we'll ever see. <laughs> now, of course, we were not thinking clearly, and the light did return a little later. But it was a, and that night we actually, you know, we didn't sleep in tents. We slept up on the rocks. Oh, and cool. It was just a, you know, it wasn't a particularly dangerous night, but it was, I mean, uh, Michael Pollan now has his book on psychotropics. I'm and, reading it right now. And I don't know where, I know he's coming to it as kind of an outsider. Uh-huh. Um, I My first reaction was, Amateur. <laughs> so I do not feel like the use of those. I mean, there is certainly the party element of people yeah. from Boulder going out to the canyon lands and tripping. And, sure. uh, you know, it's, but I feel like there's some validity 
in those experiences and that it's changed my work in my daily sober life as well. Has it really? In, in terms of being open to the natural world more and the rhythms of, you know, of things. And, and I don't, I don't poo poo those experiences. A more sober and uh, important experience in my life was early on um, uh, when I was with my wife, we were down in New Mexico and we were crossing this river, and I wrote about it in my most recent book, Ultimate Glory. And she's five feet tall and tiny, or five one, as she would just, if she hears this, she's going to be very angry. Um, and all of a sudden, the river started kind of sweeping her away for real. Okay. And I um, ran toward, you know, I was already waist deep, and, ran, and I caught her and I carried her across the river, and I wrote in the Ultimate book more and more, she was the one carrying me across. Mm-hmm the river metaphorically and for me i always remember that moment because uh you know i was kind of a late maturing and some would argue still not matured (laughs) individual and my relationship with nina is really what you know is what kind of started to bring me across the river to a more uh you know more stagnarian and less abies state of being <laughs> that's another similarity between us if i hadn't met my wife i would be a yeah. damn mess yeah. so. <laughs> that's great um so last question if you could make a request of the people who are listening to this podcast so it's people that love the west in one way or the other they could be professional athletes they could be ranchers they could be conservationists they could be sure. artists but if you think about it in concentric circles there's this part where everybody overlaps and they have this love of the west yeah. what would you ask of them or what words right. of wisdom you know, what what is to be done you know what 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 can we do another theme of the new book um tr did quite a lot as it turns out you know for the west uh uh he was in a unique position to do so uh, most of us aren't president at a time when congress hasn't quite caught up to what the antiquities act actually meant <laughs> You know, uh, so we do lesser things. That's an issue for me because in writing about Stegner and Abbey, I was impressed by writing always came first. They were artists first, but they were real activists. You know, Abbey in a more extreme way with monkey wrenching. Stegner went in with the Kennedy administration under Udall and helped write the language that became the Wilderness Act. So they were the real deal. And I feel like a little bit of a phony in comparison, not on the writing end, but on the activism end. So I'm asking myself that question too. Mm -hmm. I have had a couple activists say to me, it's important to write these books and think about it in a non-day-to-day, journalistic, Trumpy kind of way. So my answer for myself right now is to write the book, but to try to figure out for me, you know, can I, should I move from being a creative writing professor to being an activist in the West? What should I do in my own life? Um, but I have to tailor it to my particular personality and skill set. So that would be my answer, is really honestly look in the mirror and see what you can offer mm-hmm. in this. And it may be you're a great organizer. You know, it may be you're, a, 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 you know, a good at, you know, you're the people, you know, I go to a meeting and I, I have to fight sleep almost instantly. But maybe you're not that person. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's your skill. Maybe you're, you know, Right on Instagram. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, my offering is going to be the book, and I hope more. I hope that I can expand myself into activism a little more because I do feel like in this age, it's very easy to curl into a little ball 
Um, there's just so much mm-hmm. that's so scary. So, um, you know, trying to trying to fight back a little bit is what I'm going to try to do. I don't have a specific answer other than figure out, you know, like what you're doing, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, evolving, not not saying that you weren't involved before, from, no, from, from being a, a realtor to being a conserver of land. Mm-hmm. That's a perfect example. You know? Yes. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for all the hard work you put in these books because they've changed my thinking. And like I told you, when I had the initially had the idea of this podcast, you were the first guy that came into my mind that I wanted to talk to. And, um, you know, all your work has just been so influential to my thinking. So thank you for, for everything you've done. Well, that is a great compliment. And, and thanks for having me on. And I'm really looking forward to our delightful yes. session next time over about Teddy. <laughs> Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, If you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.